Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name's Podcast Mike. I work on the podcast with Will. Hey, we're currently running a collection series of episodes called Willosophies, which is a curation of themed episodes based around past guests that we've had on the podcast. Uh, Today, we're looking at the theme of mental health, uh, which is a topic that's come up a lot over the course of the podcast in the last few years. And some guests have had some really open conversations about their experiences with that subject, as well as their thoughts of coping in difficult times. So you'll hear today from writer and satirist John Safran, as well as presenter Osher Ginsberg. But up first, we've got an Australian writer and comedian. It's Felicity Ward. Now, Felicity's been massive in stand-up comedy and television in Australia, and, and she talks about her experience living and coping with anxiety. And just a disclaimer, this episode does contain some sensitive themes and also some references to suicide. So if you or a friend or anyone you know needs any help at all, please get in touch with Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. If you'd like to see Will live, he's doing his Willegal show on November 16th in the Civic Theatre in Townsville, November 17th at the J in Noosa, and some work-in-progress shows from December 7th to December 15th at the Comedy Store in Sydney. Head to willanderson.com for more details, and without further ado, here's Felicity Ward. And welcome to Willosophy. I'm Will Anderson, uh, the host of the podcast. And uh, my guest is, uh, who wh- Who are you? I am, I mean, spiritually, that's a different question, but I am Felicity Ward. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you mean bigger? I don't necessarily mean anything, Felicity. I just said I would ask you two questions, one you knew and one you would know how to answer. Right. That's the one you know how to answer. Apparently I don't. Well, I just want to hear what people say when I say, who are you? Who am I? Because that's a big question. I think that's a very, for me... That's a very loaded question. Okay. See, well, that's interesting in itself, I think. Because if some people it is just, well, yeah, I'm Felicity Ward. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, next question. Yeah. What's your other question? This podcast will be done in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's, I mean, it's great. Um, it's a quick listen, if nothing else. <laughs> She's right to the point, Felicity. Yeah, yeah. That's what I like about her. <laughs> Didn't bugger around. Didn't have to listen to 45 minutes of Will waffling to get the good shit. No, nope, straight in. Felicity Ward, comedian. What's your next question? Answer that out the door. So do you, do you find that idea of identity? or the question, who are you? You do find that a big question. I find it a big question because if someone asks you who you are, in then you need to know who you are and okay. that takes time. So how would you normally describe that? If somebody says to you, who are you, where would you normally start by answering that question? I mean, in the context of this, I would say I'm Felicity Ward. I am a comedian. Um, I am Australian. I live in London. Uh, they're like the base, the base questions of geography, occupation, um, a woman, um, but then who am I, the actual question. Right. That's when I, who am I to me says, what are your values? What do you believe in? Do you live by how you believe? Okay, good questions. I, I, I may not even be necessary in this podcast. If you could keep just asking yourself those excellent questions, they're heaps better than any questions I've ever asked on the podcast. So let's just run through those. <laughs> I remember doing an interview once and I kept adding footnotes. He's like, you know, you don't have to qualify everything. I'm like, if this was a choice, I wouldn't do it, mate. (laughs) I am in constant conversation with myself. Okay. Well, that's interesting in itself. So are you constantly asking yourself those sort of questions? Yeah, I suppose. um, 
what anxiety? So I have anxiety and depression um, at varying degrees, and what anxiety does is like a constant negative uh, presence. And sometimes it's very quiet, you can't hear it at all, and then sometimes it's incredibly loud and it's difficult to, to distinguish the truth from that or sometimes it's easier to believe the anxiety, even though you know it's not the truth. You're like, oh, but I know that voice, I know that one. Um, so over many, many years and I don't drink anymore and I was very sad at the end of my drinking, so I have been on somewhat of a spiritual quest I would I would suppose which is an ongoing thing which helps me be at peace with myself so when you ask who are you that's what I start to reflect on so we have a system in place here where you might be able to go to someone once or twice for free or for not much money but but then it all just goes away under the mental health plan you get uh 10 sessions and my, when I went through the mental health plan, it was 10 sessions at half price. That's still $60 a session at half price right. to see a therapist. That's a lot of money for a lot of people. Well, particularly when like there is no – not there's not necessarily an immediate like change, right? No, like trauma. It's a, like it's, trauma. Childhood trauma. You don't solve that in 10 sessions. You don't unpack that. You have to build up a trust with someone that you've never met before that you're going to tell them about some abuse that happened in your past right. or a horrific car accident that you've never spoken about where everyone that you love died. Like you don't unpack that stuff in 10 sessions and solve it. And some weeks it's going to be harder than others yeah. to get there and stuff. So you don't need anything to disincentivize you from going. I and guess there is no incentive for us to go. Right. There is no incentive in Australia because I'm – I'm all right. I, I, you know, even when I was waitressing, I made okay money and I could afford to go and see a doctor. But if I'm a single mum that lives in the bush with a couple of kids, how do I get, how do I get my kids to the doctor's surgery? Right. Where do I find $60 in the first place? Even with the rebate, then how do I get to a Medicare office to get that $38 back? You're just not going to go. That's before I see, like, right. Absolutely not. And I think our suicide rate in Australia is higher than the UK. And I do not doubt that that has something to do with it. Well, I mean, I grew up in the country and the suicide rate is particularly high in the country. Um, uh, farmers have mm-hmm. a, a massive rate of like uh, suicide. Uh, men in particular, like in the country, massive men, rate of... Men, full stop. Yeah. Do you want to know a fact? Okay. I love facts. There's only five countries in the world, in the world, where women have a higher rate of suicide than men. Only five. What uh, do you know? What the countries are? I think they're all in Asia. Right. I think. I'm. Oh, I mean, I know in Pakistan a, is one. I think. I know in Australia, up to the age of fifty-five, pretty much, if you're a man, like top three causes of death yep. always include suicide. Yep. Twenty-five. Like it's 40. only until you get to like you know really full-on cardiac arrests and strokes and stuff as you get older that suicide slips down again. But it doesn't go away. Yep. And when you get older again, it comes back again. Yep. Because older, older people tend to kill themselves as well. I'm reading this book, and well, I've read this book, and essentially what it costs to treat people for free in the UK if everyone who had a diagnosis um, of anxiety or depression was treated with CBT, had access to those facilities, it would cost, I think, I think it's 900 pounds per person for everything from woe to go, from doctors to um, consultations. To I mean, literally, they could call the program from woe to go. They really went from woe to go. Absolutely. Um, very good. good. You should brand. be a comedian. Good branding. Good branding. <laughs> um, 
it, it's I think it's nine hundred dollars, and within because of once you get treatment, the chances of like the um, the possibility of you working, employment rates go up, social benefits, health benefits, all of that. You make it back in two years, and then you start making money. So economically, it makes no sense for us not to be solving this problem. And this is where my little conspiracy theorist comes out because I'm like, I don't think it benefits if we mo- benefits as, uh, rich people and the government if we mobilise poor people. Because if we mobilise them, what will they do? I mean, I, I think that's a fair point. I don't even think that is a conspiracy theory. The system itself naturally does that. Like, it reinforces privilege at the top of the system. Yeah. And, like, that's what things like passing on inherited wealth do. That's what things, simple things that people wouldn't understand that are reinforcing these things in the system. But a private health system, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, rich people always get access to the best medical. And, by the way, when I say rich... I mean people including myself. Yeah. Like I am technically, you know, like yeah. I, I pay the top tax, top tax bracket. It makes me like compared to the rest of the world even rich. Mm. But then there's the super, super rich. But the system itself, they send their kids to the best schools. You make the best connections. You have the best health care. You have the best possibilities in life to be healthy and to best have options. the best jobs and the best opportunities. And if you have kids that are sick, I mean, this is like when they're going to bring in the $7, you know, co-payment here oh, in mate. Australia. Well, it wouldn't stop one middle-class person taking their sick kid to the doctor. No. But it will stop somebody who can't afford $7. They'll go, oh, well, that cough's probably just a cough. It's probably not whooping cough. Yeah. And well, I guess we'll just find out by well, the end of the week. You know? It's do I take my kid to the doctor or do we get food? Right. If you have to choose, you go, I actually reckon she's got through it before. She'll get through it again. I'll just ask a friend for some of their medicine or, you know, like people don't realise that uh, – Obviously, but the many truth, people do. Yeah, they do realise. And But there's people that don't realise that people are making that choice yes. out there. But the effect on the economy, this idea, and I think this is a good way to look at it because this is the one language that those people do actually yep. do understand, which is economics. It right? makes money. If you invest in mental health, you make money for your country. Right. It is it is flawless. But also, uh, say, like things that are intangibles. I think about this when I work walk around America, right, is so how... And again, this is not for me. This, I'm not trying to like mock the people who are at the butt of this. I want to make the point. Uh, they're homeless there are scarier than here. You know, often you've got ex-army people, people Lots with severe mental health issues, and they can, and, you know, really just and you everywhere you go, mm-hmm. everywhere you go, there's homeless people on on the bill on the pure. On the pure sort of angle of if you're a rich, comfortable person, that you don't want to see that, that you want to feel safe walking down the street, that you, like, even if you have no care for that person, surely don't you care enough for the society you live in that you'd rather that person being treated and looked after than being out there on the street? You know, I mean, I know that's a, I, I don't feel like that, but I think even like in that position. I think, again, you're, put, you're projecting too much compassion on the people who are who are these rich people? But so, I don't think they even need compassion. I think they need to go. I'm rich. I'd prefer not to have to walk past a homeless guy on the way to my house. But they don't think that giving them health is the way out of that. Uh, that okay. happened recently in San Francisco. They have an enormous homeless population mm. there, and one of the that is one of the places I got heckled by. I'll tell you this before we get to the thing. I was walking past like some, I was going for a walk in San Fran, and this group of homeless people were over like just doing a thing together. And I looked over just for a second, like but on a walk, you know. Yeah. Got my headphones on. I'm on a walk. I'm not staring or anything. But a glance, a glance. 
But obviously, as I glanced, like one guy was obviously waiting for me to glance. And this is what he yelled at me. It was the best. He goes, you'll be back here in three years. Shit. And I was like, what do you know? Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe there is a God and he's in that park. Oh, my God. Was there um, a little bit like, ha, ha, ha? Ooh. Yeah, I was like, oh, well, I guess if I'm going to be homeless anywhere, San Fran's like... Pretty warm. I mean, it's a tech hub. It is a tech hub. <laughs> That's where the letter came from. So someone wrote an open letter to a newspaper in San Francisco uh-huh. saying, we pay our taxes, we shouldn't have to walk past that. Right. That's how. That's what they... They say they don't want to walk past it, but they don't go give these people care, they go, get them out of my city. Yeah, and these are people right. that have moved into the city that have not lived there their whole lives, uh-huh. whereas these homeless people probably have lived there their whole, whole lives. Yeah, I guess I've like identified the, the asshole bit, but yeah. I thought that that would lead to a nice solution, no. which it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And, you know, in America especially, there's still that, that thing where you have to, uh, the belief that if you work hard enough, then you will get everything you need, and that's not how society is structured. Right. But it's so weird that, like, I mean, health's the one that I never understand because it's not your fault. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. I mean, like, yes, there are some things that can be, but in general, health is a thing that all of us, you know, know, we break things, we get diseases. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. Everyone. That's the end game. something. End game, everyone dies. Right. And we don't stand over people at, like as they're about to die going, well, this is all your fault. Yep. I told you. I in told 1979. You, you get leukemia? Yep. What? I'm eight. That's brutal. <laughs> That's horrible. You're a horrible person. Oh, well, it's your own fault, USA. <laughs> Vote Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Give me back my Barney doll. Let me die in peace. That was dark. Sorry. Yeah. it's But it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, tell me. What I, I guess what I really want to ask, and it's a, I guess it's a hard question to ask, but um, do you do you worry sometimes like that? I don't know. It does talking about it make it better or worse? I guess that's the question I'm asking. For me or for others? I mean, I, I don't ask you to speak for others. I, I think only you can only really speak for yourself, yeah. but. What what do you think? Like for you, has it been helpful to you to be able to talk about these things? Or do you yeah. sometimes think, oh God, now all my stuff is out there on the public record and every time I go to an interview, someone's going to bring this up and they're going to talk to me about I it? I love and... talking about it. Okay. I absolutely love talking about it. And someone asked me, aren't you, are you worried that you'll be there like the anxiety person? I'm like, I am, the, I am an anxiety person. So right. of course, this is what I remember is when I – had been diagnosed and I remember speaking to someone else uh, who is in our community and I said, oh, I've just been diagnosed with anxiety and they said, oh, I've got that and I cannot tell you and then and someone else also said that and I felt betrayed that they hadn't been talking about it. Right. I know that that's a very childish feeling and a childish response. I know that now uh-huh. but at the time I'm like, I felt so alone. Right. I felt like I felt so weird and alone and isolated and just different to everyone and that everyone else was else was just getting on with their job. Everyone else was just being comedians and doing their job and having fun and making jokes and and I had no idea that other people were struggling and it made me angry because I thought we could have been doing this together and instead we've all been sitting in silence. Oh, well, you should have listened to uh, REM voice. and you would have found out that uh, everybody, everybody hurts. hurts. <laughs> 
I thought sometimes. I thought you were gonna say uh, yeah. John Farnes, the other voice. <laughs> either way, we're not gonna sit in silence, and we're not gonna live in fear. We're not gonna do. Ooh. We're not gonna Ooh. either of them. Ooh. Uh, Where'd it go? Yeah, I can understand why people keep that stuff private. Now I can, absolutely. Yep. But that is why I talk about it. It's not why. I also love talking. Right. I talk about it because mm. I am one of the people that can talk about it. Uh-huh. And I know that there's other people that can't, that are fucking dying. And um, I know that there are very few places that the mentally ill can laugh at what they have. We get spoke- It gets spoken about a lot in papers and there's a lot of awareness and break the stigma and that feels like bullshit to me. Like we're aware, we're totally aware. Right. I'm I'm sorry if someone doesn't under like there's more important issues than awareness like suicide and I, death. I also agree I agree with that. And that, I guess that brought me on to the next thing I wanted to ask you anyway, which is I think we've got to awareness. You know, we're aware. We yeah, you know, we get, you know, beyond blue and it's talked about all the time and you know all these sort of things. But I think what we do a lot is go if you are suffering from this thing, here are some things that you can do. Yep. But what we haven't really done and I find this frustrating myself is often for, we haven't told everybody else what yep. they should be doing. And it's one in four, one in five. Right. Like it's not uncommon. It's not like Every now and again, you might run into someone with a mental illness. Right. Probably every day you speak to someone that has a mental illness of, of varying, varying qualities um, uh, or degrees of it. And the, the Are You Okay Day, that's where I always write on Facebook then. That's when I say, it's Are You Okay Day. If someone says no, here are some things that you can say to them. No, I'm sorry. That day's tomorrow. Is it? Yeah, no, oh, right. no, we'd have to. No. Oh, yeah. Today is Are You Okay Day? Yeah. Uh, Tuesday of this week is Would You Like a Cup of Tea Day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wednesday is Can I Recommend Some People? <laughs> <laughs> they should have a week. No, but what are the next things? That's, I mean, that's the interesting thing to me. If somebody says, No, I'm not okay, what would you recommend? What do you say in that situation? Uh, if you're ready to have a conversation about it, you can say, Why? What's going on for you? If you want to, and say, If you want to talk about it, is everything all right? And then if they tell you, they don't want a solution. They just want to, I want, I don't want a solution. I just want to be listened to. Felicity Ward there chatting to Will Anderson. Hey, I'm Podcast Mike and we're doing our collection series, Willosophies. If you like any of what you just heard, head to tofop.com to hear the full chat and all the other chats. That's T-O-F-O-P.com. We're looking at the theme of mental health in today's episode, and next up is a man you'd probably recognise from TV. He's the host of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise and Australian Idol back in the day. It's Osher Ginsberg. Now, Osher's recently put out a book uh, on this very topic, and uh, he speaks a lot about his struggles with mental health and uh, and also his experiences with alcohol uh, in a really, really interesting and honest chat. So enjoy Will's chat with Osher Ginsberg. Uh, lived life with anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and that that has kind of gotten worse as I've gotten older. As these things tend to happen, and then you know, anxiety, depression, and I have a you know, there's a bit of OCD floating around um, that the anxiety and depression get stuck in. So anxiety, mostly anxiety, it's um, it's a fear of the unknown. It's a fear of lack of control. Sure. All right. When am I more in control of a situation than when I'm talking on camera right. and it's live right. and 
everyone is quiet and I'm speaking and yeah. it's absolute serenity. Right. It is absolute serenity. Because someone handed you the key and it's your job not to fly it into the <laughs> well, mountain or whatever. I remember that we did one grand – and that's the thing. The live stuff is huge. We did. I used to do a show called Australian Idol. It was massive. We'd do shows at the Opera House Forecourt in Sydney and there was 10,000 people down there. And we're on the Technocrane, which is this gigantic telescoping – um, kind of uh, jib arm with an incredibly complicated camera dolly on the end of it. And I think we had the 110-foot technocrane, which is like the thing that, you know, uh, George Miller uses to shoot Mad Max magazines, all yeah, right? okay. Well, we got to do that thing, all right? And it was basically... <clears throat> It was flying across the top of the crowd and it would find me and then it found me and it did this other big, huge move to reveal the stage, all right? And... I'm standing and I'm just surrounded by, I'm in the middle of this crowd. There's 3,000 people in each direction. And it was just fucking amazing, you know, and I'm just doing this. And, you know, you just have that moment, that little brief moment. And, you know, I think, you know, when you think about, what's an example? Um, So the world surfing title, Kelly Slater, Uh will win the championship on a wave that's 12 seconds long. You're right? Right. And that's it. That's 12 seconds of his life that he's created. And I get to have these moments that I just... Well, it's Usain Bolt at the Olympics. Yeah, it's over. 10 seconds. And that's it. And Less than 10 seconds. It's if you glorious. run 10 seconds, you didn't get a ribbon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so but so the live stuff is great. So number one, live. Okay. okay. So t- have you hosted... Tell me what the hardest thing you've hosted live is. Oh, the hardest thing I've hosted live was one Channel V show we did. Channel V is a music television show in Australia. Um, like used, MTV? Or yeah, one of those yeah. Well, like shows. MTV used to be. Used it's to more be. like much music in Canada. Um, and we would we did a show at Federation Square in Melbourne, and it was right. By the way, I love your internet international context you're dropping here. <laughs> you've dropped British, you've dropped American, you've dropped Canadian. You got really, No, but I really feel like you know because I do actually have I see the statistics. I have listeners in all those countries, yeah. and I feel like at least once in this podcast, each of them has gone. Yes, that is okay. I understand that better. Well done, thank <laughs> you, Osha. It's important. <laughs> you've got to inform yet not patronise at the same time. No, that's, that's, I that's the think way you forward. fucking nailed it, mate. Uh, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm getting close to being okay. I've been at it for long enough. So you're hosting this thing for General Vert. Yeah, and we were at Federation Square and um, we'd been on the road for a long time. We used to get on a bus and go around the country and we'd been on the road for a long time and I was tired and um, we just had our executive producer, we just had the whole executive team kind of basically leave. We had a new team in charge and it. I'd been, to go back in time, I I was at the big day out in 2001 when Jessica Michalik died at uh-huh. the Limp Bizkit set and I saw what went down backstage and I felt the crowd. I knew the vibe of the crowd. It was very, very, very... I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I went to the Coronial Inquiry. I watched Fred Durst testify and I was... So that's always on my mind. Whenever I'm in front of a crowd, I'm always, always aware that with the microphone, you have a responsibility. You, man, got that's to be so I mean, careful. That, that's an interesting time that you bring up because Adam and I were doing breakfast on Triple J, and that year we were doing a thing where we were touring yeah. uh, all five big days out with the Big Day Out organization, and yeah. so we'd done the Gold Coast, yeah. and then that happened. Yeah, and uh, at the time, Triple J then had to run that news story constantly yeah. and kind of dig into that. And we were like, back. I remember that that time in my life very, very yeah. distinctly. So I've never stood in front of a crowd without having that on my mind. Yeah. All right? I've never stood in front of a crowd going, in some way I've got a duty of care here. 
in some way. I can't be responsible for everybody's actions, but the person on the mic can, and you do it all the time. I remember my director, Bernie, used to say, all people need is permission to behave. Uh-huh. You tell them to dance, they'll dance. Yep. Tell them to riot, they'll riot. They just need someone to tell them it's okay. Yeah. And anyway, so we're doing this show. It was fucking hot. I fucking dig that, by the way. That's it's really good. It's true, though. Yeah. It's absolutely true. He, I mean, we are. We're fucking he, he brought up, he brought up uh, shall we say, fascist Europe at the yeah, time, in sure. the 30s. I mean, to go, that's all you need. As long as you tell people, no, 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 it's fine if you do that. I mean, as long as you have a charismatic public speaker at the front of it. People will say, oh, I've, I've got permission to do it. I'll do it. Right. Uh, it's a Stanley Milgram test, you know, the... the um, the prisoner and uh, guard. Oh no, no, the uh, the electrocution from yeah, one room to the I'm other the test. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and we had some punk band playing. I can't remember who they were, and we were undergunned security-wise. It was very hot, and there were people fainting, and there were people, girls getting passed over, and I was very aware of people fainting standing up. You know, and, uh, what, and what was the what was the age demographic of those things? Were they young? Uh, they, they were, were young free to people? get in. It was public. Yeah. yeah, it was mostly like teenage to yeah. early. So 20s. people who don't have a lot of experience, like no, in, not like in, those, in situations. those situations. And I remember and being, that, yeah, it might get over yeah, excited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I was on the mic, and we were doing a live show, and I just came off that stage, and I was like, I'm never. I even said to the guy, I said, I don't, I'm, I don't ever want to do a show like that again. I'm never doing a show like that again. That was just too, too, too dangerous. And that was the hardest thing to host for me. Um, that was because at any moment I really... Now, bear in mind, I might have been overplaying it. I might have just been tired and I might have been, you know, just kind of freaking out a bit about it. But I was I was, I was, was quite scared. I was quite scared that something was going to go amiss and uh, it was going to happen while we were live. Tell me about this. How, how do you see yourself as a business person? Because I'm, I'm the first to admit that I'm a terrible business person. Right. Like, I mean, I have three free podcasts. I, I mean, <laughs> like, I, I make a lot of terrible decisions. And I, I, over the years, I will get to the end of my life and I will have turned down probably 80% of the money I could have made in my life. Like, I just prefer to do the things that I do and I don't make clever financial decisions and I have a fucking apartment in LA, you know, that I can't afford and I, whatever, you know, whatever. I just, that's who I am. But then I look at, and and I don't know how to monetize things and I'm not interested in that aspect of the business. I feel like you have at least some of that or at least you've tried to learn some of that yeah. recently. Tell me which of those two things that is. Uh, well, I, uh, we were just talking in your yard um, 2005, 2006, this exact era I was just describing when this Channel V show went down, I had like six jobs. I was working so fucking hard. Right. I just, you know, I just, Why did you have six jobs? I just said yes to everybody. Yeah. It, was it because... Husey and I have talked about this a lot. We've both been very, very busy people. Mm-hmm. And our theory on it is that we can't say no because there was a time in our life yeah. where everyone fucking I said think that's no. that's it as well. And no one said yes. Yeah. And we were just never got to the point yeah. where you're like, it's, it's hard for, to say no to something. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what's happening uh, at the moment again. It's starting up again. But about around that time, I was very, uh, I, I, was, I was living a very different life. I was uh, drinking and I was... When you say you were drinking, like what sort of yeah. drinking? Yeah. were you doing are you happy to talk about this you don't have to by the way but, uh yeah but i'm just interested like do you edit these i mean i can like i, okay, I here's cool. what i would say say what you want to say and if you yeah. say anything that you feel uncomfortable with all right at the end we'll just take it out okay, i'm happy cool. to do that hang on a sec is that your phone or your alarm or something no it's my phone it's someone calling from sydney so oh okay that's good um 
Yeah, I'm happy to talk about. I'm happy to talk about drinking. Yeah, um, were you drinking like when people say drinking? Because I drink a lot, and and you know sometimes I check it and go, am I drinking too much? I'm very lucky in my life that I don't have an addictive personality. I've always been able to do whatever I want to do, and then kind of like. Well, I do, but I'm addicted to comedy and mm. being able to create comedy. So if anything ends up getting in the, the way of that, then that other thing becomes unimportant mm. to me, you know. Yeah. But where what was drinking your life? Where it had come where had it come from? Um, and then where had it got to where it was like bad news? It was for you? I think, you know, I started Brisbane Brisbane drinking, which is pretty country drinking, yeah. which I'm sure you're quite familiar with. Yeah, I've done some Brisbane drinking. Yeah. Um but you know, I would I'd always been very, very, you know, very jumpy kid, very afraid of stuff. All right, just had it. You know, had panic attacks when I was really early, all that kind of thing. How early do you remember being five? panicking? Yeah, okay. Five, having like and the first you, full on fucking meltdown. And moment, what do you yeah. panic about when you're five? I don't know, but yeah, you just think okay. the world's ending. Yeah, so it's I this mean, feeling of overwhelming dread that you think the world's actually going to yeah. end right there and then. And, and I mean, I guess that's part of it, right? And I don't mm. want to certainly explain it to you. I'd rather you explain it to no, me. No, well, but. it's just the thing. You know, alcohol is a very conveniently, wildly available, socially acceptable mild medication for yeah. a vast majority vast vast array of kind of uh mental disorders yeah absolutely and um everyone's like oh no that's okay to have that and right. for some folks that's that's ace and that's all it takes but um for some folks um i'm you know classify myself as one of them um the dose that you need it tends to start increasing uh-huh. the dose you need to start feeling normal you're not drinking to be with people you know, you're drinking to just fucking make everything stop. Yeah, okay. You're just drinking to make it all just fucking, all just quiet. Please, can it just be fucking quiet? Yeah, sure. And it takes a couple and then you're like, ah, but then you can't fucking, and that's the thing. Um, so um, tell me about, and again, like is anytime, no, right. we, anytime we get Look, into I'm happy to talk about it. Look, I'm, that- I'm happy to talk about it because I never knew, I never knew what it was to not drink. Right. Absolutely. We're involved in a culture God. where it's like, I mean, I go to my work, I drink at my work, you know, and nobody has a problem with that. Incidentally, I want to, do you have some sort of mega bladder? Did you have something in, installed when you were in Los Angeles? Because I watched you down, and I'm sure there was a couple of pre-shows as well. I watched you down four stubbies the other night. You were on stage for 90 minutes. Sure. How the fuck did you not explode? Dr. Showbiz, mate. There's this thing that happens. Like, I can go, like, literally the, the 15 minutes before I go on stage, I could go three times. But when you're on stage, there's something that just takes over. I guess it's adrenaline or whatever those things, wow. but it, I, I just don't need to go. Do you then just burst when you get off stage? No, there's like a cooling off period and then you just go back to normal. But I would say ordinarily, I have what I sometimes worry is not a good enough bladder. Because I thought for a second what you were doing with that drinking was, you know, some comedians wait for the light to flash. Some people have their phone that buzzes them in their pocket. Uh-huh. And I thought what you were doing is kind of like what the Anzacs did with the Turks and that they had the little uh, dripping water into the cup that pulled down and then shot the rifle off and like if i drink enough beers when it comes time for me to really need to pee that's about time i should get off well actually weirdly enough you're not far from the truth yeah really yeah normally when i run out of beer i finish <laughs> it's about a three beer show it's a three beer show but the other night this is what i forgot about the night you the came and saw the show you a beer. A bite, the bloke from the audience brought me back a beer so it just went a little longer <laughs> Great, it's great theory, mate. Yeah, I mean, if, I love you, it. if you really want me to keep going, no. I can come to one of the shows this week and bring a six pack. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so drinking. Were you drinking uh, at work? Um, well, Channel V was pretty loose yeah, environment. So you probably could. All right, so occasionally, you know, that sort of thing it was 
you know, just kind of around and no yeah. one really seemed to bat an eyelid and it was kind of, you know, happened, but never really, uh, I tried to never on air, I just can't do it. Um, but afterwards, you know, the thing with drinking, uh, that I was doing is that, um, it's just got to do with the way the brain works and that I had to race one, like a week I stopped drinking. I would, I read three books on what alcohol does to your brain. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, the the way that alcohol affects the hippocampus, which is the thing that creates memory. Okay. And um, so after two drinks, that's already affected. Like it's you're quite unable to create new neural pathways. You just to be honest, I've not remembered a word you've said. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but it was like, say for example, we're in the back of Will's house in his um, uh, uh, what did you call it the other day? Your joint party meeting room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And say, for example, we were back here and there was a backyard full of people having a barbecue all right? yeah. and I didn't know any of them. Mm-hmm. If I was in here in the old days, I would be, you know, I'm just visualizing it now and getting nervous already. I would want to have at least two beers so I could detach myself, just pull myself a little, a few inches inside my own body so it was safe to go outside because I was unable to be that connected. It was just too intense. How does a guy who feels like that because mm. i mean i understand what you're saying about you know the, the live show when you're being in control and that giving you a moment of like oh i'm in control of this i yeah. totally get that but how does how do you go through everything that gets you to that point when you have that sort of level of like you know anxiety that you carry with you like i mean I, I, people have to do it all the time by the way this is like mental illness of any description is so common in australia and so little yeah. talked One about in four people yeah mm. i mean it's staggering you know and and the impact that it can have on your life eight australians will commit suicide today five of them will be men i mean that's crazy 80 and 80 i mean if that was a car accident fuck no forget about it it'd be lead on the news every night if it was gun violence forget it think about it that way it'd never never fucking allow it it'd never happen right so Move um, that microphone just a little bit more around, that yeah, like that. That's good. Yeah? That's fine. Okay, yeah. And then you can talk like that. All right, cool. But when um, you just did that thing from side to side in the head, like um, you went off mic a little bit. And oh, I did was I? like, it was good. It was a good effect. I appreciate it. If you were a band in the 80s, it would have been like people like, oh, have you heard oh, that new song? It had a Proclaimers 500 <laughs> miles, ba 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 ba, sort of feel to it to me. Uh, so what were we saying? We were talking about. Oh, you're talking oh about- how do I get there? Yeah. Okay, because I knew that, that, and I'm sure you get this as well, is that. On show days, it's nothing but focus, and I really get off on that. And that's yeah, okay. the and this is the thing that I have learned is the the I'm really grateful for the fact that my brain's different because okay. I have this brain that will not stop until something's done, uh-huh. and then I'll check to make sure it's done, and then I'll fucking do it so perfectly. All right, so I have that part of my brain that I'm able to use, and it's the thing that got me to that point of only just being, um, I wouldn't say perfectionist, I'd say I just would never be happy unless something was exceptional, all right? So uh, how long did it take you to be comfortable with saying that there's a positive side to that? that I had to all know it wasn't until ages later. It wasn't until after um, uh, I got diagnosed with um, uh, social anxiety in 2006 and then, uh, which is, you're fucking nuts that my job is to right. be in a room full of people staring at me when the one thing I'm terrified of is being in a room full of people staring at me. But the thing was is that my coping mechanism was if I talk loudly, 
at least I have an idea of what they might think about me. Because right. just to stand here silently, imagining what they might think about me, imagining what they might judge me is torture. I'm not sure who's quote this is originally, but it's said of stand-up comedians that they become stand-up comedians so they can control how people laugh at them. Precisely. That is exactly like I would talk loudly in lifts. Right. Really uncomfortable for everybody. Uh-huh. But that was the only way I could do it. Only way I could stand in a small box with strangers. Um, so I ended up getting paid for my coping mechanism, you know, handsomely too. And I got, you know, quite good at it. So to answer your question, that's how I got to stage. It was, it was the, you know, the hours after or the days after when I'm just sitting around the house, that's the worst. When did you realize that the drinking was problematic? Was it a sudden realization or was it like a a realization over like a, a period of time? If I'd listened when someone first told me. Oh, so, so so someone did tell you. Oh yeah. 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 My early twenties. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, yeah. But I, you know. I mean, I probably could look back and have people have told me, but mostly I tell them to get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, give me a bit. Yeah, it was people who were like genuinely concerned, you know. Mm. Um, but but you didn't listen to them because you just didn't believe it was true? Yeah, that. And again, what I talked about before is that you're unable to make right. new, You're, un- you're but that's why people do it all. That's why the people, they... You know, they do the same fucking thing every time because they forgot that last time they did it, you know, someone ended up crying, something ended up broken. Right. You know, and then they just fucking do it again. And they go, you know, the, some, the same bloke drops the pants the same time of the night every time. It's like, it's not, it's still not funny, but they can't remember that it's not a good idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky. I'm really, really, really lucky because towards the end it got... So you got pretty grim yeah. towards the end. Was there stuff that you needed to, like, um, once you had dealt with it, like once you started dealing with it, I guess that's how you mm. say it, um, was there stuff that you had to go and repair? Had you broken anything so oh, much yeah. that you felt like... <laughs> I tried as hard as I could to go back. There's still, you know, there's, there's, Some a, stuff long list of, there's a long list of people I need to go and talk to. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But yeah, and that's a very big part of it, you know. That's what does really that feel big... like? I mean, I, I'm sure that I have that too. If I want to think about it, like um, you know, and mistakes that I've made and all those sort of things. But is that something that weighs heavy on you, or is there's that there's nothing you... there's nothing as freeing as taking responsibility for when you're really fucked up, right? And because we all do. The only thing, in my experience, the only thing that can, or the only thing that can come close to repairing damage like that is to try and put into words what you imagine that person went through because of your behavior. Uh-huh. To be and, genuinely empathetic. And to generally and, and, and try and make them understand that when I did this, you might have felt this way. That might right. have made you feel this way. When I said this, it could have, not never telling them what they thought or right. what they smelled or what they smelled, what they thought or what they saw. I mean, or, well, if that yeah, was, yeah, I mean, yeah. to be honest, mate, yeah. if there was a smelling situation, yeah, yeah. you do have some apologies. Yeah, truly, <laughs> truly. Um, but yeah, it's when, when you've... We can, we can forgive everything, mate, except for what we smell. <laughs> and it's just being real thorough, man. It's being yeah. real thorough. And like, I'm, not, I'm still not, nobody's perfect. But though, okay, no, but, and no one expects you to be. But here's what I would say about that is, I think one of the things that stops people from genuinely changing their life or repairing that stuff is the fact that the minute you acknowledge it, then you've got so much more hard fucking work to do after that to fucking fix this shit. Sometimes it's easier just to keep going along with what you're doing rather than start the fucking hard work of fixing it all. Cause that's like, you're basically knocking the place down and start. Well, that's exactly it. And I, I don't think fixing is the right word. Well, I, again, I'd like yeah, to I say is like, um, 
just do everything I could to clean up my part of the mess. Yeah, sure. Everything that I can to clean up my part of the mess. Yeah. And if I've cleaned up my part of the mess, then that's the, you know, I've got to be happy okay, with that. So but I can't, I can't, I can't repair some parts of it. And I've just got to be, okay. and that's a boundary thing. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. I don't want to talk about this for the whole thing it's because okay. there's other things to talk about and that I'm very interested to talk about. But sure. um, but it is also really fascinating to me. So um, I'm going to ask a couple of more questions sure, and then we'll you move want. on. Um, when did you when did you realize? When did you go? Okay, this is I've got to stop. Um, like like any, you know. Like anyone who's been in my was in my position or a version of my position, you try and stop a few times by yourself. Yeah, you try and see how far you can go. Oh, I might just not drink this week. I might not drink this four weeks. I might, you know, I once made it a whole season of on air of Idol. I okay. once made ten weeks on right. air without without drinking. Yeah, okay. And then on the after party, it was right. just I was DJing. I was like, <laughs> I want a bucket of hot egg and I and it was like a duck to fucking yeah. water. Um, I'm back. Oh, dude, I didn't even blink. Heineken um, had a black. So, <laughs> Heineken had a terrible three months. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, so yeah, there was a few like like you know I tried I tried to stop by myself yeah. and, it, and you know it didn't uh, it just didn't take didn't you know I wasn't able to do it because I hadn't. And you mentioned it before, you know, you've really got to figure out why you, what, 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 it, what skills do you lack in dealing with the world as it is that you have to anesthetize yourself so you uh-huh. can cope with the world as it is. Right. So you have to start dealing with the actual fucking problems. Exactly. It's, you got to learn. And so, because I, you know, I, it, it, so it got to the point where I was like, I was like drinking every day, and then earlier in the day, and then I was just, I was just unable to stop. Sure. And there's nothing fucking worse. I promise you that. When you actually can't. Oh no! Even no. though you want to. I mean, I've seen it up close. Yeah, like no more, doubt you have. More, you fucking... more, more times than I would want. Of course to, you have. To, uh, would yeah, want to have of course you have. To people that I love. Yeah, so no I doubt. Get it. And so yeah, I was really lucky in that I, I had a very clear, clear moment that it was like, well, I've got a choice here. I can have, you know, what's at the end of this road and it's pretty fucking clear what it is. Yeah. Or I can try something else because at the moment every day is the same. Man, it's getting, I know exactly what's going to happen if I keep doing this. But the other way, I don't quite know what's going to happen, but it's not that way and I don't want to end up down there. So, so how does that path start? What do you start with? Because you've got to start with something. You've there got to get be, to a point And the reason I want to ask you, and yeah? this is, and yeah? just to put this in context is, I bet there's a million people out here like listening to this. A million. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I bet there's a whole part of their audience for, yeah. who this is resonating with, whether it's to do with this particular like topic, but to be at a point in your life where suddenly you have to go, it might be a relationship, it might yeah. be a job thing, it might be a, a drug of another kind or whatever, but this idea that suddenly you have to go... This, you are not part of my life anymore. It's the simple. I am not taking yeah. the booty call from you. I'm <laughs> not like you it's. Know. It's a, and it's, I'm not the first person to say it, but it's really simple. When the pain of change is smaller, right, than the pain of staying the same. Uh-huh. So you change it the other end. When the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. So a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to change. It's too painful. Oh, I don't want to change. It's too painful. At the point that. If I don't change, I'm going to be under all this fucking pain. That's when you go, okay, yeah, I've, got to, okay. I've got to do something about it. So this. how do you start, though? What did you do? Was there something that you did specifically to start? 
Yeah, just I, I, I got to a point where I just woke up one morning and I, even though I'd said it many times before, uh-huh. you really, really have to in your the bottom, deepest part of your heart realise, all right, I don't ever want to fucking do that again. Osher Ginsberg there in his chat with Will Anderson from 2016, digging into the archives of Willosophy at the moment for our Willosophy's Collection series. And if you like that, head to tofop.com for the full chat. Now, lastly, let's hear from John Safran. John's a documentary maker, a writer, a satirist, often dealing with a lot of big issues from politics to religion. John talks a lot here about his philosophy, the sky doesn't fall in, and how it motivates him to keep going with the things that he's doing. And then they kept on going, who are you? Who are you? And yeah, so, so anyway, I put that piece together years later for Music Jamboree and someone contacted me and said, oh my God, isn't it like weird that you, these two tense moments in two different series over the years is someone like, who are you? Who are you? And, and you not being able to answer. Well, I mean, it's an interesting place for us to start this. And I guess it's why I start with that question, because I yeah. guess that's what this podcast is about. Mm. Who are you? Who are we? You know, who, who am I? It's, I guess it's all those things, the thing that we are asking ourselves and trying to define in ourselves every day. So uh, I will start with the other big question and then we yes. will go on from there, which is, do you have a philosophy? Do you subscribe to a philosophy? Have you ever had a philosophy? I think, yeah, I think I've had several, but the, the one that comes to mind immediately when you asked me before the mics were turned on, I was going, oh, what is my philosophy? He's definitely one of them, which is the sky doesn't fall in. Oh, that's good. I, and, I, oh, I already like that a lot. Okay, and, explain more what you mean. But. And, and people use the excuse that the sky is going to fall in to sort of like not do things. All the time. And it's probably I, the number one, like, I mean, across everything that we do in our lives, yep. the number one thing that prevents us from doing what we actually want to do yep. is the idea of what would happen, what are all the bad things that could happen. And I think the reason this really cemented in my head when I was quite younger oh, this is good. This is was, good. was because I was reading this, uh, you know, in university, I'd always try to like find out, you know, all the names of, I'd, I'd want to read their books of like, oh, who are these big names that everyone talks about? So I read this uh, biography by Edward Said, who's this uh, Palestinian writer. And so it's... The, the, it, People are going to be really annoyed that I've like nicked this Palestinian writer's philosophy, <laughs> but but hasn't like applied it to be a freedom fighter or anything. I've just applied it to my right. actual life or whatever. But and anyway, so he classic white privilege. Yes. <laughs> so he talked about how because he was talking about how everyone, everyone makes a big drama that that they can't stand up for the Palestinians and like they make this big hoo 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 and it's really scary. And he just goes, you know what? He he, he was say, saying, listen, I'm I'm a Palestinian activist, and you know what? This guy doesn't fall in. Right. Like, like so. So something as sort of like as heated as that, he he was just saying people totally exaggerate, uh, according to him, how, how like the consequences if you're going to like take that the the political stand or whatever. So so in the in the case of like Vincent McGee, when I started hearing about the, the story of abuse in his life, that sort of doesn't isn't really to do with being black or white or whatever, like, and, and the abuse that he'd both suffered and also that he'd, he'd met it out on other people. And I was just so out of my comfort zone and just so distraught. I, like, I was like, a normal, it was almost like, oh my God, had I known I was going to end up having these conversations, like if this was just, if I knew at the start, I, pro- I don't know, I'd come, I would have come over here. How, how have you coped with that? Like, do you feel like you have ways that you, like, because you... T- 
as you said, you, you're often surrounded by a lot of like, you know, people with, you know, like you know, energies or, you know, sharing information with you or being around situations that the rest of us would find, like I would find one of those confronting, yes. let alone, you know, being around those people and in that world and alone and scared. Like I asked you a question at your book thing last night of just like, did you tell your family and friends you were going? Because I was like, mine wouldn't let me. You said you said to me, "Go, I'm an adult. I'm an adult." I said, "I'm but, a grown up." Right, you're a grown I'm up. I'm allowed to go to Mississippi, right? I'm but I'm not up. sure that my friends would let me. I yeah. think they would think it was too dangerous for me to be. And I think it would be too dangerous for me to for me to be around that many dangerous people all that time. I don't think I'm strong enough to handle that. What is it about you, either that makes you interested in that, or be what is your technique of coping with that when you're around it? Oh, so. I, I guess like one level is it's it's highly stimulating mentally. Okay. So that's that's a bit of the trade off where you get to talk to people that are just so different to your world in in my case in Balaclava in Melbourne and so that's just you, you know I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, are like well you know such an important part of my life or what I'd like to be an important part of my life is having a job where you you know it's sort of it's stimulating. So, so this definitely ticks that box. And then the way I cope with it, I guess there's at least two things. One is it's a, it's a bit like if you're going over the speed limit and whilst you're driving, you're not really thinking, oh, oh, oh this is going to be the time where you have a car crash and end up as a quadriplegic for the rest of your life. You just think this time's going to be okay. Like you don't even think about it. And so there's a bit of that where once you actually get into the moment and you kind of go into these little worlds, you just think this time's going to be okay. You know, like when, when you go through the forest and cold, cold call knocking on the door of the clansman and he opens the door, you just think this isn't going to be the time where I get lynched from a tree. It should be okay. Then on top of that, what, what, one of the things that really keeps me going is I, I go to the point of no return where, and that, that, that's two things. Like that's, that, that's, that's like a, why when I write things, I like just going into the little town, whether it's in Australia or Mississippi, because You'd knock on the door, and then you're at the, you're at the point of no return. You can't. What are you going to do now? Right. And so, so, there's, so, so there's that. <laughs> Plus, usually there's some other dynamic going on. Well, so, that I mean, that comes back to the sky's not going to fall in. Yeah. Right. That's your attitude of going. All right. I, and there is something that about. I think if you've never made a mistake, or if you've never. They've been in a situation. I always say it to comedians, like particularly when you're first starting, do as many gigs as you can. doesn't matter if they're terrible because yeah. you've got to do terrible gigs at some stage. Like if you do this for long enough, you'll do terrible gigs. Yeah. So you might as well learn how to do them <laughs> and realize that they don't really matter as soon as possible. And yeah. then you'll be able to actually get on with your job. And it may take years, but you've got to get to that point where you realize the sky won't fall in if I take a risk or if I fail. And if I fail, I can get back up again and I can do it again. So obviously in your head, you've got to that point at least a little bit in your approach to these things. Yeah, for sure. And, and and the other dynamic that's going on that's kind of invisible, I guess, to the reader of the book or the the watcher of my documentaries is that it's taken like a, a long time to kind of get all the pieces together for this. And there's someone who's backed you, like either at the ABC or at the publishing company. And, you know, and, you know, they've even given you a check. And and so, but it's not it's not entirely that, but it's like I just feel this great shame. Like I, I just can't return. I, I can't imagine after like Penguin backed me of me like not handing in a manuscript or not coming up with a story. I'd just be too ashamed. Right. And 
And the same with uh, doing a documentary. I'd just be too ashamed to like come back and have to talk to my my green, you know, my producer at the ABC who back and just go, oh, yeah, well, you're going to have to come up with something because like we don't have any footage no, or no, whatever. No. So <laughs> that were really scary. Yeah, and, and it's like, and, and here's it, me eating the minibar. And shame is everyone always thinks shame's a bad thing, but in some ways. It's a real driver. I'm filled with a lot of self-hatred because... Where does a, that come from? I'm a, I don't know. I just guess brought up and just my dad, like, you know, education was important. And I, and I was... I'm a combination of being lazy and a workaholic somehow at the same time. Uh-huh. So that, that means I kind of like procrastinate, but I'm filled with so much self-loathing that I'm always thinking, I'm always writing and I'm so angry. I'm like, oh my God, if I hadn't procrastinated, this would be over by now. And like, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I mean, I'm emba- like I was talking about writing for this magazine and I've got an editor there, Ben, and I'm just, I'm so embarrassed that when I'm late for work and it just keeps me driving. So it just means I get things in late, but I eventually, I actually, like unlike most creative people, I, I do get it done. And so... And do, does that uh, have a destructive side to it as well, though? Like, I mean, obviously the process-driven, you know, it gets mm. you to do what you're able to do. But is there an element of th- that attitude of like self-hatred or whatever that you think is negative? Or is it just you're fine with it in that sort of... Well, it's, a, it, it's so hard to work out how to get the balance right. Because, for instance, you kind of have to be lazy for a while to kind of process what's going on. So right. you're not actually being lazy. You, you just sort of... Oh my god! I was just thrown into this weird world. Like I spent five days recently in Redfern in Sydney because this poster had gone up, and someone sent me a photo that they'd taken of it, and it was in Redfern. And this poster had gone up, and it said uh, uh, "Redfern for uh, the Aboriginal Mob: Asians out of Redfern." It's like what the hell? What? Yeah, it was like so crazy. So, so I, I went there and kind of spent five days trying to get to the bottom of this yeah. poster and what it meant, and was it some outside racist who put it on to start trouble, or? But there was this thing going on there where international students, Asian international students, were going to be set up in housing there. So maybe there was like this renegade Aboriginal person. Anyway, so I spent, and, and you can imagine, like I'd never thought about this issue before, and, and right. just getting to the bottom of it, getting my head around this whole thing. And I spent five mad days where I'm like talking to people at the, the gym and then I find out that there's a Tongan community, you know, within this Aboriginal community and they don't necessarily get – and it's just like it's insanely stimulating but so confusing. And and so when it, when I kind of come out of that, I guess you kind of have to spend some time uh-huh. – like it's not as simple as I'm lazy because I should start punching it out on the keyboard straight away. You just You do have to – meditate on it like a, a Cohen. Yeah, I, I often feel like when you're doing creative things that a lot of the time, because you never know what the, your next thing's going to be. Yeah. And when it arrives, you've got to be ready to go. It's very hard to get up to speed on something. Yep. So basically your whole life, I always think of it as just, I'm just topping up. Yep. I'm trying to fill my brain with like influences and inspirations and be across enough things in the areas that I want to be across that if I go on morning radio and someone throws me a question about something, I at least have a go-to or a funny or like an idea or an attitude or whatever or something in my brain that I can access, you know, because you never know where what specific thing you're going to need. You just kind of have to top yourself up. And sometimes that's life things as well. Sometimes you can spend, like I've had a big year on the road and the thing I feel like I'm, like I'm going to try to take some time in the next month or so to just do some shit. I don't know what, like nothing with purpose, just some <laughs> shit, you know, because I feel like that's, 
actually what I've missed out. Like it's something that I'm not I'm not taking in the full influences to you know, be able to talk about what I want to talk about. For sure. The, you know, I was thinking, this is a tip I, I, I learned about procrastination where it's like positive, not positive, but right. gl- the, the best way to do it is like when I wasn't writing my true crime book and feeling like really bad, what I'd do is I'd read books. Yeah. So my pre- so, so I'm kind of feeling guilty because I'm not writing my book, but, but I am like learning all, I'm soaking up like the methods that these other writers use to write. So I think... Well, I don't know how it applies to whatever people's thing is, but make what you procrastinate something that's going to help right. what you're procrastinating but also, from. But also, even like I'm, I'm more on a... Okay, here's what I would like to say. I, I, own your moment. If you choose to do something, then the worst thing you can do is then burden that moment with guilt or shame or those things that like... You know, if you're going, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch a movie. Then just... Don't then sit on the couch and go, oh, God, I'm guilty. I should be doing... Watch the movie and enjoy the moment and then get up and do the rest of the thing. Whatever you do, be in the moment. Don't waste time. If you liked that or any of the chats today or you want to check out more episodes of the podcast, head to tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com. If you like the podcast, rate and review it. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, Philosophy Pod P-O-D. I'm Podcast Mike, and we'll be putting these compilation episodes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays for the next few weeks. Thank you so much for listening, guys.